We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad. On the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of The First Deadly Sin on October 3rd, 1980. It was written by Man Rubin, based on a novel by Lawrence Sanders, directed by Brian G. Hutton, and released by Filmways Pictures. Filmways responsible so far this year for How to Beat the High Cost of Living, while they were still transferring over from American International, The Earthling, Dressed to Kill, and Without Warning so far. Those are our Filmways pictures. Not the best track record. No, I think Dressed to Kill was a high point there, and then they kind of flubbed it a bit. Yeah. In 1970, author Lawrence Sanders' novel The Anderson Tapes was published, and the following year it was adapted into a film of the same name, directed by Sidney Lumet whose remake of Gloria we just shit all over. <laughs> and starring Sean Connery as the titular Anderson, Diane Cannon from our previous episode, Coast to Coast, and Ralph Meeker as Edward X. Delaney. Meeker's final feature film appearance would come in 1980's Filmways picture, Without Warning. He was one of the guys in the bar that was making fun of Sarge. Okay. But his character, Delaney, survived into four novelized sequels entitled The First, Second, Third, and Fourth Deadly Sins, respectively. Okay. So Wait. it starts with The Anderson Tapes, and then The First Deadly Sin, The Second Deadly Sin, The Third Deadly Sin, The Fourth Deadly Sin. There's five books. Okay. In now the- I'm questioning the title of this movie more. <laughs> <laughs> the second novel in the series, The First Deadly Sin, was published in 1973. It was initially set to be directed by Don Siegel, the on-again, off-again director of Rough Cut with Burt Reynolds earlier this year, in 1974. But when Roman Polanski became available, he was attached in Siegel's place. Unfortunately, a few weeks before the start of principal photography, Polanski was famously arrested and received a grand jury indictment on charges of statutory rape with a 13-year-old girl. Are we saying that's unfortunately? I mean, I think it's great that he was arrested. The whole situation that it happened was unfortunate. I'm like, I'm all for arresting Roman Polanski. (laughs) The director was arrested for his indiscretions. Yeah, for the film, perhaps. For the world, we're good. This would have been a better movie if he'd directed it, but he didn't deserve to direct it, is what I'm saying. Okay. Polanski pled guilty and after 42 days in prison agreed to a plea bargain with the agreed-upon punishment being time served and probation. However, the judge in the case stupidly blurted out to a friend of Polanski's that his intent was to instead sentence Polanski to 50 years in prison, a sentence he would still be serving today, assuming he didn't manage time off for good behavior. So if you're going to do that, that's fine. Don't tell Polanski's friend about it and give him a heads up because that's stupid. Yeah, didn't he just flee the country? Yep. (laughs) Yep. Word having gotten back to Polanski what the judge planned, he fled to London and eventually France where he has lived since, protected from extradition by the French government and free to do whatever he wants within the borders of the country. He continues to make whatever films he pleases, and he's even collected three Oscar nominations and a win while in exile. Aw, jeez. What did we give him that for? The Uh, pianist. The pianist, yeah. Somehow, it took all the way to 2018 for him to be ejected from the Academy. 
Polanski infuriatingly blames Harvey Weinstein for his ejection. (laughs) You mean ironically? (laughs) Yeah. Well, he says that it's Harvey's fault because Harvey is the reason that people care about women now. Like, you dick. What? Like, because of all the shit that Harvey went through, he was like, oh, well, no one would have cared about me if he hadn't done all that terrible stuff. Wow. You both did terrible things. Wow. What a weird perspective on the world. During the 2003 Oscar season, Polanski also accused Weinstein of trying to brand him as a child rapist, probably because he totally is one and pled guilty. Screenwriter Man Rubin was brought on to the first Deadly Sin to rework the story in pursuit of casting Marlon Brando in the lead role, taking over for Ralph Meeker in the earlier film. Brando turned it down, and eventually Sinatra was attached as an executive producer and accepted the lead role in the film, and director Brian G. Hutton was officially hired to replace Polanski. The film shot in 10 weeks. Faye Dunaway received a Worst Actress Razzie nomination for her appearance in the film, which makes three Razzie-nominated titles in a row for us after Robert Blake from Coast to Coast and John Adams, or Juan Adams, from Gloria. This was Sinatra's first role in 10 years and his last leading role. Had he been a producer on other things? I have to assume he was, but I don't know. I just wonder what, I mean, I don't know him as a producer, obviously, you know him. He's acted in a lot of stuff, From acting and things. Yeah, Yeah, I just, it was curious what would have attached him as a producer to this one. We open the film at night on a lit-up crucifix-shaped sign for the Mount Pleasant Baptist Church, and we crane down to street level. We follow a shadowy figure across streets and down sidewalks. He enters a building under a red light, and we're cutting back and forth quickly from this scene to a hospital operating room where Barbara Delaney is being prepped for surgery. This will be a running theme of cross-cutting the killer's activity with either Delaney or his wife or his wife for some reason. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's no correlation between all these shots that they intercut. Yeah, it's weird. The shadowy guy waits just inside the door, watching a bus unload passengers onto the sidewalk. Very real-looking surgery is randomly being peppered in as this bad guy watches a man move down the sidewalk and across the street, and then he steps out to approach him. I'm pretty sure this is actual surgery footage. Yeah, well, that's what the, my reaction when I saw that was that looked very real. Yeah. So, yeah, perhaps. I How do you know. get permission? Or do, is it like stock footage? Or do you get I think permission it was stock. To, to film a surgery? I, I don't know why it was necessary to include no. stock footage of an actual surgery. No. Especially because that entire storyline is irrelevant. Well, it's irrelevant and it's not. We'll, we'll get into it. All right. He walks straight towards the man on the sidewalk and just after passing him spins to bury an ice pick in the guy's head repeatedly. Simultaneously in the OR, a doctor hits an artery or something and blood is spurting into the faces of the surrounding doctors. Now we cut to the police precinct where a call is coming in to inform Officer Delaney that his wife Barbara just entered emergency surgery. The desk sergeant says Delaney is out on a homicide call, and he advises trying to reach him from the radio car. So I think we're to assume that his wife was already in the hospital. Yes. From some other ailment. Yeah. From a conversation he has later, they thought it was like a kidney stone or something Mm -hmm. like that, and it got worse. So she was in the hospital, but now she's been moved to surgery. A rookie goes to bother Delaney at the murder scene that we just left, and Delaney tells him to check all the garbage bags down the street. When the guy gets pissy about having to look through trash, Delaney says, When did you get out of the academy? Two months ago. Check both sides of the street. Because he's being a dick about it. What year is this supposed to take place? I think 1980. Okay. 
Yeah, it, it has an old-timey feel, but, you know, it's Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Because yeah. when that guy comes up, his uniform, it looks like the freaking Rocketeer's uniform. It's so many buttons. Yeah, that's true. And I was like... Oh, is this like like a this is this like a a, a historical piece or timepiece? Like I was like, what well, is this? It's not Sinatra's first detective movie, even. So I feel like, and if this is his first movie in ten years, then that means the rest of them were all in the fifties and sixties. So it would make sense that that's what he's used to, mm-hmm. and so that's what they would kind of emulate on set. But I, I don't think it's supposed to take place in a previous time period because well, like the doorman is using like a switchboard. That's true. That's true. Now I gotta look up like pictures of the cars. I think that's the the giveaway. Well, he's got the Porsche, right? The point, yeah, the Porsche looked newer. It did. For whatever reason, the coroner is here at the scene, and he's telling Delaney what he can determine here. The cause of death appears to be a hole punched in the back of the skull, not a bullet. Delaney guesses a hammer, and Doctor Ferguson tells him he can't say more for certain until he gets the body downtown. Delaney asks for a preliminary report by morning, and the doc obliges when Delaney is called away with word of his wife's operation. We cut inside a bathroom, presumably the murderer's, while he's taking a shower, and the color shifts to red before we crossfade from this frosted shower door to the frosted door at the hospital as Delaney enters. He speaks to Dr. Bernardi, who informs him that his wife was admitted with a dangerously infected kidney and that they had to operate right away to remove it. She's in recovery, so she can't see him for a few hours. Instead, he just heads back to his office at the precinct. Delaney is visited by another officer who tells him the case of the busted skull sounds familiar and refers him to a similar case. As this scene ends, Delaney looks at a picture of the widowed mother and two daughters of the victim, and we crossfade back to Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. Delaney is walking the sidewalks under the sign and finds the chalk outline from the murder. The next morning, he wakes up on the couch in the hospital. His wife is awake and available to speak with. She's not doing good. She's in a lot of pain, and she seems a little out of it. She passes out while they're talking to each other here. Delaney heads back to the precinct, and he speaks with Sergeant Corelli about the similar case. He says it went in the file as a mugging. He intended to follow up on it, but Captain Broughton came down on him hard to drop it. Broughton is the new precinct captain, and he was hired with the express goal of cleaning up the precinct because... It has a bad reputation, and he's trying to cut down on any unnecessary work. Yeah, I don't really to... understand why you'd want to cut back on a potential murder investigation. Well, if it's not local to their precinct specifically, then it means that they're taking resources away from their local crime prevention. Oh, okay. So the sim- so the similar murder was in a nearby precinct. Right. Okay. And he's saying, don't look into it. Let them solve it. Corelli asks how long he has to retirement, and Delaney says just a few more weeks, and Corelli says, well, stop wasting your time with this case then. It took me a while to put together the relevance of his wife being in the hospital for this whole plot, but I think the implication here is that ordinarily Delaney would not have bothered with this case at all. So it's just like he's got spare time? Or he's trying to keep his mind off of her being in surgery, and so he's busying himself with extra work. Yes. But he's also, because he's so close to retirement, he's also in a position to ignore whatever the captain says because it's not going to affect him long term. Yeah, but he's also in a position to just ignore everything and go be with your wife. Yeah, but the doctors aren't even letting him just be with her the whole time and she keeps passing out while they're talking. He goes to his wife Barbara again and gifts her a handful of violets. She asks how Rocky is. He's tough, he's fat, and he's sassy. Don't let him take advantage of you. 
He won't. He's a good cat. Barbara seems to lose it a little here and is suddenly describing a memory from childhood, a series of books she got as a Christmas gift, and then she passes out again. As we cut to the morgue, where Delaney needs to speak with Dr. Ferguson. Delaney asks if the wound being circular means the weapon was circular, and he says not necessarily. Delaney also brings up the detail in the report that the penetration was curved downward. That the point of the weapon is lower than the shaft. Like, like an erection, losing interest. Pickaxe is too big, but a mini pickaxe might match. Judging from the angle, the killer is likely six foot plus, and Delaney supposes that based on how close he'd have to be, that the killer was well-dressed in white. Delaney heads home and sits on his empty bed and cries for a moment. The next day, Delaney asks for every unsolved murder file from the five boroughs in the last three years involving a hammer or some kind of spike. I think that presuming that the guy was well-dressed and white was a little bit of a leap because... I, it was I, from behind. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and somebody is running up to attack you. You know, when his his theory was that if he wasn't a you know well dressed white dude, he wouldn't have let him anywhere near him. But it's just like if somebody's running up and attacking you, or even if they're you just don't sneaking really up. intend for them to be anywhere near you anyway. So yeah. like, yeah. what were you gonna do about it? So I, I thought that was kind of a big jump. It is. The guy at the desk thinks that Broughton will throw a shit fit if uh, he hears about this order for all these files, and he says he needs authorization for that kind of a task. And Delaney says, "I'm giving you authorization." For whatever reason, Delaney meets with the curator of a nearby medieval weapons museum. (laughs) Uh, The curator of this museum will become my favorite character of the movie. Yes, absolutely. His name is is Mr. Christopher Langley, and he's wonderful, but I question whether a detective would actually bother with going to a medieval museum for this case. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny because, I mean, obviously we saw the murder happen, but... The moment you say a mini pickaxe, something that's curved downward and round and pointy, I'm like, oh, well, he's talking about like the the ice picks that you use for climbing, you know, right. like even without having seen that, I, I could have told you that that was probably the weapon. Yeah. I didn't have to presume that it was some weird medieval device that doesn't <laughs> normally exist. <laughs> but as they're walking through the exhibit, Langley tells him that ancient ironwork was rarely circular because they used anvils. More likely, this was a tool and a modern one. Langley offers to do some research for Delaney and asks him to come back this afternoon. I like how excited he is about it. And he's basically saying, like, "Mm, everything I do is kind of boring. I really want to be involved in this. Let me help you. That's what started to make me think about Delaney's motives for following this case so closely. Because I feel like there's a common thread there that both of these guys are like, I need something to do with my off time. Yeah. And so I'm going to just fiddle with this case because it seems like this is a riddle and there's something here. Instead of the crap that I don't want to do, which is my regular life right now. I mean, I think that makes sense as a theory as to why, but I don't think it's necessary. I agree. And so I, I the entire time I was waiting for this movie to bring her storyline around to make it mm-hmm. relevant, to, to like, you know, connect the dots. And it, it really doesn't come to me. It's rare that you have this kind of a situation where the person in the hospital isn't at some point going to be the victim of this killer. Like... You expect that the final scene of this movie is going to be like the end of The Hunter or something, where she's in the hospital and this crazy guy is running through the halls sure. and is chasing him at night. Well, or but just for them to connection. never even cross paths is weird. Yeah, to be related in any way, yeah. you know, as a victim or anything else. I expected her to die at the midpoint. Hmm. Like that, like, and then he'd have nothing to lose. Situation. Yeah, like exactly. Like he was, he yeah. was just going to go. He was going to double down, go all in. 
against the captain, against all this stuff, uh, because because now he can. He right. doesn't he doesn't have a life to worry about yeah. afterwards. That makes sense. At a public park later, Delaney meets with Mrs. Gilbert from the photograph, the widow of the unsolved murder that started the film. He tries to verify with her that her husband wasn't up to anything that night and that he had no murderous enemies to speak of. She seems a little insulted by this line of questioning. And when he apologizes, she says, you want to do me a favor? Find whoever murdered my husband. Don't tell me you're sorry. Yeah. This scene is meaningless because it introduces the character. That's fine. But all his questions that he asks her, she says, I already told all this to police. Right. And, and he so, already has that file. Yeah, so there's, there's, this happens a couple times in the movie where he goes to somebody to get information that he already has. I think it's just because it wouldn't make sense for us to watch him read it out of the file out loud. No, I understand that. But it's also weird to go to the murder victim to ask questions that she's already been asked. Yeah. Delaney visits his wife again with more flowers. He also surprises her with the book she was mumbling about the last time he saw her. And she seems moved by it. He tells her that their dream house, which has never been for sale, might be on the market soon. That he got a letter from the person who lives there. Do you think this is true? No. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted them to confirm that it wasn't true in the movie, but they don't. Yeah. I wanted him to keep coming in and talking to her about this house. And then a doctor pulls him aside and says, where's that house you're talking about moving to? And he's like, oh, it burned down a month ago. Like, <laughs> it's, it doesn't exist anymore. But I knew she wasn't coming out of this building. Back at the precinct, Delaney collects lists of hammer murders, or as I call them, ham murders, uh, from the last three years. <laughs> that reminds <What>? me of that. <laughs> ham murders. <laughs> you know. No, I don't know. We call them steamed hams. The word steamed hammer hams. And murder. It <laughs> um, reminds me of that Onion article about the ham, the ham murderer. <laughs> They're like, McDonald's discontinues the ham murderer mascot i just remember <laughs> the last sentence always killed me it was like uh it was like the ham murderer is quickly becoming the worst received corporate mascot since since what was it like ocean sprays 1989 discontinuation of the grapist a huge purple <laughs> monster that sodomizes thirsty children <laughs> i just love the detail that they're thirsty Delaney meets the museum curator again. It seems like he's just jumping, you know, I'm going to talk to this person for a second. I'm going to talk to this person for a second. That's what the whole movie is. Yeah. It it feels very repetitive watching it. But now they're talking about the tools again, and Langley shows him the ones that he's closed in on. He has examples of hammers used by bricklayers, carpenters, and upholsterers, but none of them curve down as Dr. Ferguson suggested they should. Langley says that he'll check a few hardware stores for something, but Delaney tells him that that won't be necessary. Sergeant, uh, uh, I'm an aging armory expert who sits around going to waste. Use me. All right, Mr. Langley. We get this quick insert of what looks like the killer using exercise equipment in his home before cutting back to Delaney's place. Once again, it's cross-cutting between the killer's activities in his home and either Delaney or Barbara. Uh, Barbara is Delaney's wife. Right. Uh, and they they keep obscuring the murderer's face. Yeah. Yes. Like we don't know who it is, and it's there's some kind of big surprise coming. Um, but there's not. So yeah. there's no reason. It doesn't matter. Who even it is. <laughs> even when we directly see him, 
in the act of about to commit a murder, later on they obscure his face again. I was like, we know who it is. Yeah. Why do you keep I, I think doing this? The only reason to do that is so that we're not 100% sure that he's on the right track. Mm. Because we see the guy he's following and we see that guy's face, but we we keep not seeing this guy's face. And so they wanted us to be like, is that guy that he's following the right guy? It doesn't, yeah, he I has think different you're right hair. about that. Yeah, it's because yeah. they bring up the hair thing. Delaney begins writing clues on a canvas while the killer works out aggressively and Barbara seems to have some kind of emergency in the hospital. It looks like a white blood cell count situation. She's like freaking out in bed and covered in sweat and trying to get out of her hospital bed. We see the killer open a closet at home and grasp his murder weapon in a small clear bag before dropping it again frustratedly and moving away. He takes a shower and cries. Delaney meets with Broughton who tells him that he intends to fix the precinct's shitty reputation and that he can't do that if Delaney's running around reassigning his men to bullshit cases. But if I'm right, this means there's a killer running around. Delaney, I'm telling you for the last time, I don't want to hear it. To emphasize just how disinterested he is in non-essential cases, he says, So if you got Jack the Ripper going down on Lizzie Borden in the middle of Times Square, I don't want to know about it. I want to know about it, though. <laughs> sounds amazing. These people don't even belong in this time. Yeah. We're going to touch on somewhere in time later this year. This isn't a time travel movie. He tells Delaney on his way out that because he's retiring soon and has an otherwise stellar record that he won't be reporting this insubordination and allows Delaney to stay on the Gilbert case. Well, Delaney asks him yeah. to remain. And I'm like, this scene is so defeated. I really needed that Harry Callahan moment of, I'm going to do what I want to do and yeah. you just try to stop me. Well, I think it's a... it's. A bigger pain in his ass if he tries to put up a fight here than if he just does whatever he wants as soon as he leaves the office. But, anyway. but I just feel so defeated. Like, I have yet to see, like, any, like, real action from this guy. And, yeah. and I know it's not that kind of movie. I mean, it does become that kind of movie. Yeah, but but I just feel like I, I'm so – I feel so bad about this person. I feel like he's not motivated enough or he's – I can't even think of the word. I was just like, I don't care about this guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's not inspiring. Yeah. I would have a hard time imagining that if he got reported for what he did here, that he would get in trouble anyways. Right. Because he's all he has to do, you know, his insubordination was tasking people to help him find a serial killer, which they then find evidence of other murders that yeah. would fit the description. Yeah. So- he did nothing wrong it, yeah it's not even a real threat but the guy just has to be a hard ass because he wants everyone to do what he says next comes inarguably the best scene in the entire film mr langley from the museum is digging through the pickaxes at a local tool shop and he's asking a salesperson for help and the man keeps suggesting larger tools until langley says these aren't right well, uh, perhaps if you tell me what you need it for uh I mean, camping, gardening, uh, hiking in the mountains. Uh, it's to kill someone. Wonderful. Kill someone. <laughs> of course. He chalks it up as a joke, but Langley says there's nothing humorous about it and lifts a hammer off the wall to pantomime smashing someone's brains in. He asks the man to repeat the activities he just listed and then asks where he can find equipment for mountain climbing when the man directs him to a sporting goods store. I have a hard time believing that anybody at a hardware store 
would have been like, oh, do you mean, do you need a hammer for mountain climbing? Like, yeah. you assume that they're trying to do some sort of task that requires a tool, like some sort of construction type yeah, task you would if think, you're at a hardware store. Why would I be here? Why would I be recommending sporting goods to you? Yeah. <laughs> Delaney meets again with Mrs. Gilbert. She asks some questions and apologizes for her curtness before because she sees the work that he's putting in. But it doesn't seem like there's really a reason for him to come visit her here. No. Other than... He could have called. Yeah. But it's it's basically just to reestablish like, hey, this is another person in this movie. So she could show up again later just mm-hmm. so you don't forget who she is. And she will. Yeah. Delaney goes to visit a woman named Sonny Jordine in jail. Apparently she lifted a wallet off of the dead guy. And Delaney says that she could be charged as an accessory if she doesn't help him find the man responsible. He pays her in cigarettes. But the only information he gets is that she saw a guy in a black raincoat. And that doesn't pay off at all later in the movie. Yeah, I mean... aside from the fact that we see him put on a black raincoat later. Right, but everyone in the city has a black raincoat. Like, And also, we already knew it was him. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, uh, this was another note that I had. No new information is given. Yeah. (laughs) Langley asks the salesperson in a sporting goods store and eventually zeroes in on what he's looking for, an ice hammer. My dear... Made an aging curator. Ecstatic. Delaney meets with Dr. Ferguson in the cafeteria, and he confirms that the two murder cases are very similar from the paperwork, at least. It's quite possibly the same killer. Before Ferguson steps away, Delaney asks what he knows about a Dr. Bernardi, the man who removed Barbara's kidney. Ferguson has only nice things to say and reminds Delaney that doctors care, but sometimes they're shitty at talking to people. It's called bedside manner. Yeah. Most doctors care very deeply, but some can't show it, that's all. Before he leaves, the doctor recommends getting Broughton to approve exhuming the earlier victim so Ferguson can compare the wounds in person. He also mentioned here that in both cases, bone fragments were found in the hair, which suggests that the tool did more damage on the way out. Delaney finds Langley just outside his office, where he presents him with what he believes to be the closest yet approximation of the murder weapon. Delaney points out that this has a triangular tip and that they're still thinking round when Langley admits he has a couple more sporting goods stores to check out. In a thunderstorm, Barbara wakes up terrified and tries to get out of her bed again when a nurse finds her. The killer wanders around his own home, terrified of the thunder. Delaney's called into the hospital and sees her panicking. He reads to her from the book he bought her earlier, and this seems to calm her. See, right away, when this movie started, given the title and the opening image... I was like, oh, this is going to have some kind of like psychological or weird spiritual connection. And Between so, these two characters? Yeah. So when she's like freaking out and it shows him freaking out in his apartment, I was like, are they connected? Is there some kind of connection between these people? And and if so, what is it? But no, it's just that he's afraid of thunder, I guess. Yeah. And, and darkness in general. Yeah. Uh, I He doesn't turn on his lights, but he, you know... <laughs> Why not? I, I, I guess it's just it's just weird to keep showing him. And again, we know it's the killer because there's no reason to show this random guy. Right. And yeah. this time, again, not obscuring his face, but we will obscure his face later, even though we know it's the same guy. Yeah. While Delaney reads, we see the killer hiding in a payphone waiting for his next victim. He passes him on the sidewalk and then turns around to swing at him, but kind of misses it this time. He pokes a few holes in the guy. But the guy actually gets away, and then he gets hit by a car and dies. Delaney arrives at the sporting goods store where Langley is waiting, 
with what looks like the exact murder weapon. The store owner is very happy to look through his files for the name and address of whoever ordered this hammer from the shop. He doesn't want crazy murderers for customers. So it's not exactly that he's looking for the name of somebody who bought the hammer. He's, he's looking, looking for people who have a subscription to the catalog. Well, and there's hundreds and hundreds of those. He's looking for somebody who has a, multiple changes of address right. for the catalog because he he has assumed that this person goes to the neighborhood in which or moves to the neighborhood in which he kills and right. then moves again. Because it seems like from the cases that he's compiled that there are three neighborhoods where these murders all cluster in. And so the guy that owns the store is perfectly willing to hand over his entire archive of people who have the catalog for his products. He's checking the entire archive of people right. who receive these Against catalogs. those neighborhoods and against change of addresses. Right. Delaney visits Ferguson to show him the weapon, but Ferguson has a surprise too. A new victim this morning with very similar wounds, though he died by being struck by a car. When Ferguson sees the weapon, he suspects that the serrated teeth are responsible for the bone fragments in the hair. Delaney goes to see Barbara again. He tells her all about the freshly painted dream house, and at this point I get the impression that he's just trying to cheer her up. She asks how close it is to Christmas and reminds him to prepare the house for it with a tree and roasted ducks. So this was the scene I thought for sure she was going to die. This is it. This, yeah. is, this is her death scene because she he's... She's talking about Christmas dinner, and and she says, "Get a roasted duck." I was like, "Oh, because there's just gonna be, because it's just gonna be him." Like yeah. she's telling him how to decorate the tree because she won't be there for it. What what you should eat because I won't be there. I thought yeah. this is for sure the scene where he, she dies, and the movie's gonna take a turn. But no, no, she lives on. It could have been in some draft that this is where she dies, but. Who knows? Delaney invites the curator and the widow to his home. <laughs> this was so ridiculous. <laughs> it's like he keeps telling Langley like, oh, no, really, you've done too much already. And he's like, hey, come to my house. I have eight hours worth of paperwork for you to sort through. <laughs> who else could I bother? Hey, that lady whose husband just died with two children. She definitely doesn't have anything better to do. You've so got he, some free time now. Yeah. So he drags the widow to his house also. And the two of them go sorting through this huge archive of change of address forms. He mentions the three neighborhoods that correlate to the three groups of killings. They could all be the work of the same man. He asks them to please sort through the cards to find a name with multiple changes of address that correspond with these three groups of similar murders. Delaney heads back to the hospital to chew out his wife's doctor and jump down his throat for every little comment he makes. This time we're hoping for better luck. Luck. Doctors don't use luck. They use medicine and brains, not luck. You know what I mean. No, I don't know what you mean. We are doing everything possible to stop the infection. Listen, she's sensible, she's not sensible, she rambles, she's in, she's out. I don't know what the hell's going on. Now explain it to me. That doesn't worry me. You see, with this... It doesn't worry you, you son of a bitch. That lady in there is my wife. She's my whole world. Do you understand that? She trusts you. She hired you. You keep giving her all that bullshit about antibiotics and steroids, and I think it's killing you instead of curing it. And why her? Why her? Hey, hey, take it easy. Take it easy. Come on. 
that's the end of that scene huh yeah that's the end of the scene he just walks away yeah he he pins the doctor against the wall and just drops him and then walks away yeah but the doctor says when he's like fighting with him and got him pinned against the wall he's like this is a public place like maybe you should be doing this to me in private like (laughs) 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 delaney meets a new character finally ben at a local bar he tells ben that he needs approval to exhume a body but he can't get it from broughton he says broughton is plugged directly into the mayor's office so you can't go over his head. Ben tells Delaney that he's setting himself up for a big fight and then disappears from the movie completely. No, he, he comes back. No, it's a different guy. Is that a different guy? Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. God. <laughs> it's like, why? Why did you set this guy up and then have him not come back? When Delaney gets home, the widow is cleaning up the kitchen and Langley is zonked out at the table. Amazingly, they found three names in that huge pile that matched Delaney's parameters and he's very impressed with their work. Delaney follows up on the names that they gave him. The first one is Mr. Sautel. He knocks on a man's door, and when no one answers, he just goes inside, and we see him wandering around this guy's apartment. That's not how police work. You can't just go inside. I mean, I I realize that he's not following the rules in his own precinct, like, you know, making assignments that he shouldn't be making, but just entering an apartment and poking around like you're... If the door's unlocked and open, I think that he might be allowed to go inside. But I don't think he would have done that in this situation. I think you are. I think you have to have, like, probable cause to enter somebody's residence, even if it's unlocked. I think he considers this series of change of address forms probable cause. No, like, probable cause that something is, like, someone is coming to harm inside or something. Yeah, that's what he thinks, based on those addresses. He's like, (laughs) someone's going to get murdered in here. Yeah, but, like, anything you find in here would be totally inadmissible. Yeah. Yeah. Delaney looks around the place for a murder weapon when suddenly he has something stuck into his back and a guy's talking to him as if he's on the end of a shotgun. But we can see from our angle that it's a that it's the foot of a crutch in his back. Which is, again, not a good choice. That we can see the whole time that it's fake? Yeah. Yeah. It, it would have been great. Like, we just, or see, we see a shadow of something up against his back and he, he responds to it. But... The whole time we know he's not in danger, so there's no tension. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Delaney thinks it's a gun until he sees Sautel behind him in a wheelchair, and the guy laughs it off like, I always wanted to say those silly cop lines. Anyway, why are you here? And uh, Delaney basically decides very ablestly that this guy probably isn't the killer. (laughs) Well, we know that the killer has to be taller than these victims because the angle of the wound in the head was like a downward thrusting motion. Yeah. So, but that's the whole uh, deal. Uh, Maybe he took this chair off a ramp. We don't know. Well, yeah, yeah, you mean he's faking the whole no, wheelchair thing? I'm saying he rolled it really fast. Oh, and he went off a ramp, <laughs> and then from the air took the guy out. But that's also a great way. It w- had had the real killer just gotten in a wheelchair and pretended to be in a wheelchair. Good to go. Oh, the, you the definitely didn't gone, do it. Yep, this guy. That, that's all I need what to are know. The chances that all three of these cards that I found had were people in wheelchairs. That's crazy. <laughs> you got to give him the test like that Michael Caine uses in uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, <laughs> where he's got the switch and it's hitting Steve Martin's legs. <laughs> <laughs> the guy says he keeps moving around because his wife is an asshole, and she keeps moving him to nearby hospitals in case they have a miracle cure for his paralysis. What a jerk! Yeah, terrible wife. I'm glad he divorced her. Probably. Who knows? <laughs> Next, Delaney heads to a nicer looking building. He speaks with the doorman and pretends that the second name, Daniel Blank, has been dating a young woman and that Delaney is here on behalf of the girl's parents. He took a lot of really wild assumptions about yeah. this yes. guy. Because he doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would be 
palling around with a young woman to me. Yeah. But also, like, he could have been married and the doorman go- could have gone like, oh, my God, I got to go tell his wife. Or, yeah. like. Or that's my husband. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's like, or, yeah. Or that guy's gay or something. Like, any any number of things. Like, to to throw this out there. And, like, what if the doorman, like, told the building management that this guy's bringing underage girls into the building and he gets thrown out of his apartment. Oh, when, no. When you don't even Poor know. Poor murderer. Yeah, well, well, but he doesn't, he doesn't know. know that this one's the murderer. There's a 50% murderer. chance now. <laughs> Assuming that we're, we're wheeling out, ruling out the wheelchair guy. <laughs> we're wheeling out the wheelchair guy. We're wheeling him out of the suspect room. <laughs> uh, but uh, what what was the show? Um, what's the... Where you, there's three doors, and once you've eliminated one, you pick from the other two. So let's make a deal. No, that's the the money money hall thing. Yeah, the Monty yeah. Hall. That's what it is. It's the Monty Hall conundrum. What do they call it? The Monty Hall. Or what was that? Uh, we, we we just saw that in a movie problem. recently too. The the uh, Melvin and Howard. She had pick. one, two, or three. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But they hadn't eliminated any of them yet. What is it called? The Monty Hall paradox. Yeah, Monty Hall problem. The Monty Hall problem. Yeah. So that's what it is. We've we've eliminated one suspect and we're left with two. So the Monty Hall problem says that you're you're better off if you're guessing that it's one of these two guys. Well, it's it's a matter of whether or not you you pick the first door or the second door, or if you change your mind from the first door that you picked after they've ruled out one of the other two. So let's say at the beginning he thought it was number three, and then he ruled out the first guy. It makes sense to switch to number two. Yeah. So this guy is even is the most likely killer. <laughs> I don't know why you'd randomly have picked one or two or any of them. Well, he the saved beginning. the best for last. He thought, <laughs> but then Monty Hall dictates that he has to frame this guy for child molestation. <laughs> yeah. For some like, reason, he, he he throws all of these charges and allegations against him, and he's already got a card printed for his alter ego of a PI. Yeah. And I'm like, is this guy gonna be the murderer? Is there a twist? Where Delaney has been the murderer this whole time. Here's the twist I wanted. Are you ready? I wanted Langley to get caught by other police because they were like, oh, the, all these murders have the same weapon and this guy's got a bunch of them in his car. <laughs> and then like in some like argument, the guy gets killed and they just have to go like, all right, that's it. Those murders are solved. <laughs> and Langley gets pinned with all these murders. <laughs> I, I did have a note similar to that. It was like, I really want Langley just to start committing murders. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's even better. It, it's like the end of cruising where the murderous rage just transfers from one character to yeah. another one the doorman accepts a tip in exchange for information and gives him an id the guy is six two which checks out he's typically out of the building from nine to five and they move into the doorman's small office to talk out of the way of the residents he asks if this guy has any hobbies and the doorman says well he's a mountain climber which is strike two he's like oh he made me help him move all of his stuff the doorman is called away by a buzzer, and Delaney takes a card with Daniel Blank's information and the key to his room. The doorman sees clearly that the key is gone, but he accepts a tip of $100 to let Delaney into Blank's room tomorrow morning. I don't know why he did that so obviously, like he left the door open to the keys. It's like the guy called him on it right away. Yeah. He was clearly trying to get away with those keys there, but maybe he just needed to take two things so that when he got caught, he only had to return one of them. Uh, or he could have just gar- grabbed him and then instead of pretending to read the newspaper like he was, just walk away and the doorman's not going to like grab you and try to throw you to the ground. You just keep walking. Here's what I would have done. Taken... 
Daniel's keys and someone else's keys from really far away mm -hmm. in the panel. And then he's like, all right, give me the keys back. And you give him the wrong keys back. Because then you still got Daniel's yeah, keys. There you go. But he didn't do that. Delaney heads down to the parking structure and he finds the vehicle that the doorman described just as Blank is getting into it. And he walks very slowly past to judge the man by looking at him, whether he thinks he's capable of murder, I guess. And he asks the guy, like, oh, is this building whatever? And he's like, yep, that's this building. That night, Delaney calls the killer's number from the card that he stole. Uh, which was really awkward because it shows him dialing and then it it's like the it's the first thing he does when he comes home. Yeah. He enters his home. Delaney walks directly to the phone. Yeah. He enters the home, walks directly to the phone, immediately dials a number, and then it cuts to the phone and it doesn't ring. And it doesn't ring for like a good three or four seconds. And I started getting really anxious. It's like, is it going to ring? <laughs> Who did he call? <laughs> is this the number he called? And then finally it does ring. But yeah. it held on the phone for so long. I think that is indicative of all of the editing in this Yeah, film, that's though. true. There's, there's editing issues here. It's so long. The pacing is rough. But when the guy does eventually answer the phone, his face is obscured by things in the apartment. But we can at least see that he has a shaved head, which is not what the guy in the parking structure looked like. Unless he was wigging out. And he was. The next day, Delaney pays the 100 bucks for 10 minutes to head upstairs. The doorman says he will ring the room when his time is up. Exploring the room very slowly for the 10 minutes that he paid for, Delaney eventually finds the murder weapon in a bag in the closet. It, it, it's almost a real-time 10 minutes. Yeah. I, I was like, this is going on forever. <laughs> but I feel like... If he only had 10 minutes in this room, he would be running around pulling out drawers and yeah. looking in closets. Because how long is the elevator ride? Yeah, there could be a body in here and you you only had time to check one of the four closets because you were taking your time. But when his time is up, the doorman starts to ring the room and Delaney very slowly, it looks like he's writing something down on a piece of paper, but we'll learn later that he's actually tracing the room key to a piece of paper. And then he heads back downstairs and he gives the doorman the key back. Back at the station, another new character, apparently Ben's higher up, has to give Delaney a police 101 lesson about chain of evidence. You can't get a warrant for this guy's apartment from evidence you obtained illegally. Delaney pretends not to understand for a minute. The judge would rather throw you in jail than the suspect. You're just going to have to wait him out. Wait what out? Wait until he goes out and kills again and I come out of an alley and nail him? I mean, it probably makes sense to give the audience some of that information because you know we are a law and order generation we've watched all these shows mm -hmm. but have have him explain this to the widow though or something like, that that makes why sense why can't you just get the exemption and it's like well i can't do that he shouldn't be being explained to this yeah. uh, but the audience might need this information yeah the man relents and agrees to approve the exhuming but he says that he's going to tell broughton about it and Delaney says to leave Broughton out of it because it's all a secret. And it seems like at the end of the scene that the guy's back to not wanting to help. Like, he's like, okay, well, if you're not going to tell him about it, then you're going to cause all kinds of problems. So, no. Delaney heads back to the hospital, and he begs Barbara to get better as she's sobbing, saying, I'm trying. I'm doing everything I can. That night, he goes to church, and he prays for her. And we see the killer preparing his weapon and wig for a murder stroll. Delaney carves a key from the outline that he made, and then he loads a gun. In Blank's building lobby, Delaney confirms Blank is in the building with the nighttime doorman. 
So Delaney leaves a message and hides outside. He follows Why? Blank- why? He just needed to know that he was in the building. I get he didn't that. get there I, too late. I get that. But he's got his phone number. So he could call him to verify. Right. Well, why? not from here. No, but I and but there are payphones. This is still the era of payphones. Right. Um but the second thing is why leave word that He's trying to antagonize him there. Is he? Yeah. I think. I thought the point was to unnerve him. Almost the same as the point of talking to the guy in the parking structure, which is like, why bother? It's just to freak him out. So I guess the phone call and this together was supposed to make him think that he's being pursued? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Uh, I don't know what other reason he would have to call the guy and just listen. I don't either. <laughs> but that's what I thought to, was to check to see if he's there. Yeah, I think it was to check and see if he was there and to just get inside his head a little bit. Blank comes out of the building and Delaney follows him down sidewalks at night. At one point, Blank is frightened by a group of fighting people on the sidewalk and he turns around and heads straight at Delaney, who's forced to duck into a small restaurant on the corner and then he watches Blank pass by out the windows. Just as Delaney exits the restaurant, another customer is entering in front of him and this is the first feature film appearance of Mr. Bruce Willis. (laughs) He doesn't have any lines, but you can almost see his face. You just get this familiar chin. That's all. (laughs) I didn't even notice. I guess I wasn't watching the chins in that scene. I always check the chins. Delaney follows Blank across the street and into some scaffolding wrapped in plastic. Delaney takes a shortcut down a narrow alley and pops out in front of Blank on the sidewalk. Blank approaches him, determined, but is scared by the silently still standing Delaney and turns to run away eventually. Blank runs back to his apartment where his phone rings, terrifying him, so he strips quickly to cry in the shower. Delaney opens the door with his key replica, and he gets it wide enough that he can bust the slide lock off with a screwdriver. He moves into the apartment. So at this point, though, we have established, like, he knows he's home. He knows he's walking into the yeah. place where this killer is. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't know that this guy's crying in the bathroom. No, he, he could be standing right there right, with a the gun. He could be anywhere in this apartment and he's not being sneaky at all. He's no. just turning on lights and just waltzing into these rooms. Like I don't and it's not like he's going in you cautiously know, or gun drawn or anything. Mm-hmm. He's just walking in. So why not do this the first time you got there? Yeah. When you talked to the doorman and asked if he was in. Who knows? He moves into the apartment to find Blank in the fetal position in the bottom compartment of his closet with the murder weapon. Blank starts monologuing to Delaney as though Delaney were some sort of all-knowing evil force. They were my friends. We found truth together because we came so close. The act of dying is the final act of surrendering. He claims that everyone he killed basically merged with him and that he loves them all. This is your... Your classic uh, Red Dragon, Buffalo Bill-esque kind of crazed killer speech. But he thinks that Delaney is like the manifestation of his problem. He thinks that this is a hallucination and not a person. He does mention, oh, you didn't bring the leather bindings this time or the wooden blocks for my feet. Thank you. (laughs) Like, oh, good, you're not going to torture me this time. Well, I think he's having flashbacks to some sort of childhood abuse. Yeah. And and assumes that this is, Delaney's like a parent or something. Yeah. But Delaney instructs him to get dressed so that he can take him somewhere. Blank suspects that Delaney is talking about the cellar. He says, I don't want to go back in the cellar. 
But when Delaney makes it clear he's talking about the police station, Blank turns on a dime and claims to have friends in high places that will keep him out of jail. Blank moves to call the police on Delaney and tells the operator, no, I'm in no physical danger, when Delaney shoots him in the head. <laughs> uh, he he also hesitates to give his address when he says the address. Oh. Um, I think it's because he moves so often. Oh. He doesn't know it off the top of his head real well. And he's not even going to be here that much longer either. He was supposed <laughs> to move out in the next two weeks. Oh, I thought you meant because he's going to die. Oh, that too. <laughs> that too. Both. Well, we don't know how long he's going to be here. He might be here for longer, actually. <laughs> no, I guess not. They've, they've already found him later tonight. But Blank is killed instantly by this shot. And we cut to Delaney turning in his badge and gun to retire at the police precinct. Uh, the desk sergeant tells Delaney, hey, we just got a call about a homicide on some hotshot executive, which I'm assuming is yeah. Blank. Yes. And Delaney says, oh, I just retired, but thanks. The desk sergeant says, it won't be the same without you here. And Delaney gives him the It's Chinatown line of, it's always the same, sergeant. Which I'm sure they thought was going to be like in the top, AFI's top 100 film <laughs> lines. Uh, we cut back to Delaney with Barbara in the hospital. He's reading to her from the book again when she appears to pass away while he's reading. Okay, and, but okay, does she pass away? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Okay. I thought she was already dead. Well, <laughs> you thought she was dead halfway through the no, movie. No, no, but but I mean, I I thought that. I thought we, I thought there was going to be more of a reveal that this was like a funeral home, and okay. or, or that she was going to be in like a coffin, or they were laying her to rest. That's true because they are very narrowly lit. Yeah, in the room, it could yes. easily have not been the hospital. Yes. Okay. So this shot super weird. So in order to indicate that she's dead, she sort of you know goes a little limp and like her head you and know, she kind of to gasps the sides a bit. and mm-hmm. she gasps. Yeah, and then we linger on this shot as we like pull away from we them. pull back very very slowly and it the shot is a minute or two long and he's continuing to read to her and he's continuing to read to her she is breathing this yeah. whole time yeah she's moving a lot <laughs> and she's and then she wiggles a little bit i'm just like if you're gonna be like at that point i'm like is she dead i don't know she's moving an awful lot for a dead person yeah well, that's the opposite of rigor mortis. It's called <laughs> rigor breathus. <laughs> and uh, dead bodies will sometimes breathe for years. <laughs> well, I'm just like, if you can't have the person in the seat, like, it, it, don't do a shot that long if you can't have them not breathe during that shot. Find a way to cut around it so we're just looking at him being sad or something. But you can also breathe shallow breaths yeah. so that your chest isn't heaving up and down. Yeah. As he deserved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you generally you don't tell them to hold their breath. You generally tell them just to breathe very shallow. Yeah. I feel like the Razzie here is less a statement as to her performance and more a Faye Dunaway. Why are you in this movie? This could have been a mannequin. There's no (laughs) reason for you to be in this bed this whole time. And I'm sure they shot her in a day. Yeah. Two days at most. She never gets out of the bed. Yeah. She tries once. (laughs) (laughs) Um, according to Wikipedia, at the end of the novel, Blank retreats to a bluff called Devil's Needle in upstate New York, where he eventually succumbs to dehydration. What? But IMDb <laughs> Trivia says the book's ending is much grander and more epic in scale. So you, the listener, get to decide which is true, because it can't be both. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, and that's, I haven't read any of the other books. So. That's weird. That's <laughs> 
That's a also, weird ending. I think it's weird to have a series of five books about a detective, and in the second one, he retires. <laughs> it's like, I guess he's a PI for the other three. But I think that it loses some of its effect if he doesn't kill him, because I thought the whole idea was maybe in this moment, he is understanding the crazy rant that the guy is going off on about what it means to kill somebody. And like sure. they're making that sort of connection. He's like, there. I want to merge with this guy and <laughs> love him forever. Um, it kind of reminded me of the movie Insomnia though, too, where, mm. it, cause it's about like how Al Pacino is like this famous detective and, that it turns out that he's been planting evidence whenever he's a thousand percent certain but they don't have what they need to convict yeah and uh it's about hillary swank thinking like this is terrible and he shouldn't be doing this but then at the end she learns the lesson that sometimes you have to do it that way essentially that's the lesson of that movie yeah can we talk about the title of this film yeah because (sighs) what is the first deadly sin so here's the thing so here's the thing the 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 deadly sins, like the seven, seven. deadly sins, yeah. mm-hmm. have nothing to do with murder. Right. And they have no order. Oh, yeah. there, there isn't a, an I order to them? I thought there was an order. I don't think so. Here. What's I'm the a... first one in seven? What's <laughs> the first one that they do? I, I know oh. wrath is seven. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the first one? Gluttony? No, they, they, gluttony is later. Envy? Sloth? It's the, the, it's the, it's the murdered... They have the murdered lawyer, but I think that that was greed. Uh, pride they find later. Sloth they find later. Okay, so accord- So I'm on the Wikipedia page. This has nothing to do with the movie Seven. Oh, okay. I'm just saying that the, the Seven Deadly Sins are linked to works from the 4th century uh, from a monk. I'm not going to be able to pronounce this monk's name, so I'm not even going to try. And he listed them in this order uh, in the works from this monk, which was gluttony prostitution which isn't i guess would maybe be lust Lust. now um avarice or or greed uh pride sadness (laughs) which i guess is now envy wrath boasting these aren't the seven deadly sins oh yeah i guess pride yeah okay i thought you already said pride though Pride and, did. Pride, pride and and boasting pride. are both on the list. That's probably why they narrowed it down because there's eight listed here. Yeah. So they probably narrowed it down to seven. <laughs> I like the idea. He's like, I'm so proud of myself. <laughs> I came up with two words for proud. It's yeah. like, you put proud twice. But, no, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't. I'm lust, too smart for that. <laughs> lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, pride. Uh, that's dumb. But none of them are murder. Yeah. Like that's a commandment, you know, thou shalt not kill, but it's not it's not one of the the recognized deadly sins as yeah. as we, you know. I can't even think of one that would specifically be applicable to this gluttony. situation. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the glutton? The, I mean, the I killer he was a glutton was a, for murder. He was a glutton for gunishment. <laughs> I think, I, 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 forgive me for my 12 years of Catholic school and I don't know all of this, but I think that mur- like killing is a mortal sin, not a deadly sin. Or are we talking about commandments now? Yeah. No, like the mortal sins are like the worst of the sins. See, I didn't even know about these. I've been killing people left and right. <laughs> I thought I just had to not be jealous of other people's kill counts. <laughs> well, there's like, there's the not so bad 
sins you know like, like honoring you, your father and mother well or like you were <laughs> you're mean to your brother versus you killed your brother so like it's a venial sin versus a mortal sin venial. can't it be both all sorts of new words <laughs> can i be mean in the way that i kill him i don't know anyway i'm just bothered by this title because yeah. it has nothing to do with the seven deadly sins or sinning or religion he goes to church they put three crucifixes in the movie though so that makes it about religion because <laughs> there's there's the one on the on the front of the church obviously there's a uh, crucifix of mirrors in the guy's yeah. uh, apartment and then there's also a cross at the hospital and i'm assuming dying. if we're talking about the sin like the first deadly sin we're talking about his act at the end of the movie mm-hmm. is that right like that's his or maybe we're thinking chronologically what was the first deadly sin because eating the apple wasn't deadly right was the first deadly sin like killing your brother <laughs> Well, I guess I would have to know what the other four or the other three books, which is also infuriating that he only goes through four of the seven in in book form unless he died. Then, and which right, I but feel it has bad, nothing but... to do with the seven deadly sins, it seems. We're just calling it deadly yeah. sins. Well, but again, because it is an adaptation from a novel and maybe they didn't think that they were going to make more. Or maybe the book explains better why it's called the first deadly sin. But in those situations, and we've come, we've, we've run into this before, if you're going to take the meaning of the title out of the script, then you have to change the title of the movie. Yeah. I kept waiting for some kind of religious tie-in. Yeah. Like, like not even so much like, like seven, but, or, and not something so extreme like Constantine, but maybe something like fallen. I could have gone for Constantine. Uh, the hell mouths. And yeah, that was a little too much for me, but, <laughs> but I was, but I was thinking like more like fallen, like yeah. that, 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 that there was going to be some, higher darker force or even the exorcist like uh uh where there there is something it's not just some guy killing people on the street because she's also in this hospital there's gonna be some kind of link but there isn't there isn't a link to anything yeah it doesn't connect even thematically it doesn't connect to anything it's it's aside from my suspicion that the point is just that he would have let this killer get away with it if his wife weren't dying because he would have been he's like oh i'm gonna clock out early and go home and watch jeopardy with my wife because i don't give a shit what this person is killing or or if the killings were linked in some way to his wife's ailment yeah like i need to stop this because my wife is in this situation like like if if his wife had been a victim of the killer or had been injured in a similar style like she had brain damage because someone hit her and this guy's going around hitting people and killing them that way. I'm, these are terrible examples, but I needed something to connect the wife's in the hospital with what was happening, especially when you do all this crazy cross cutting of the killer doing things. That's the real problem is you, you made it look like they were related when they aren't. I, I also think that if they were trying to make the point that he was noodling because he was lonely, that, it would have made sense to hammer that home more. Like, for instance, when he goes home and cries on the bed, like you have him come into the apartment, set his keys down, look around for a second, pick his keys back up and go back to the precinct. Yeah. It's just like, I don't want to be here. Yeah. Well, or at least have some sort of payoff to her story at all. Because I feel like every time we went back to her, it was the same scene 
over and over and over again until she just died. Well, maybe in the second Deadly Sin, it's like the opposite of Return to the Blue Lagoon. And they're like, she's alive. <laughs> <laughs> and they just go home to the to the greenhouse. To the, to the fancy new house yeah. that they bought. Um, I also always question when a movie is set during a holiday and they make a big deal out of it. Was it? This was Christmas. Well, they, I don't it, think they make a big deal. The only, There's two references to Christmas in my mind. There is her asking if they've put the Christmas decorations out in the stores yet. And then there is a there is like a Christmas carol band or something singing outside, uh, I think, the precinct. Well, there's also like a Santa Claus, uh, like an electronic Santa Claus at the yeah. store. Yeah. There's Christmas lights up. Um, there's a guy, the guy the guy who gets hit by the car is carrying Christmas presents. Oh, okay. And, and I'm like... What is the relevance of setting this it's an extra at lonely Christmas. time of year without your wife? Does Iron Man three bother you? That's a Christmas movie. I, well, no, again, yes, it does. It does. <laughs> Iron Man, There's Iron Christmas Man. decorations in every shot of that yeah, movie. Yeah, no, it's anytime a movie is set during a holiday and it doesn't play a factor. Like, why was Jurassic World set during Christmas? I don't know. What does that have to do? Why did you make even bring it up? Just just have the kids go to the island. That's I don't another need to... example that I didn't realize that it was set during Christmas. I was like, the kids are on Christmas break. Oh, okay. And I was like, why? Why not have it set during summer? Or or just we don't have go them to go a tropical island in the summer. <laughs> but just have them get to the island. I don't like Timmy and Tim and Lex. In the first Jurassic Park, I didn't need to know that they were out of school. Like, it's like as a Do parent, I care? yeah, as like as a parent, I was very concerned that the kids weren't in school. <laughs> like, no one yeah. said that. Yeah, because anyone would let their kid take a month off to go see fucking dinosaurs in yes. person. Yeah. Uh, so I I don't know what the purpose was for that. Yeah, I don't either. Our director here was Brian G. Hutton. He's the director of Where Eagles Dare, Kelly's Heroes. Wild Seed and Night Watch. The writer was Man Rubin. He has mostly TV credits, uh, a, few tr- a few features here and there, but nothing I recognized. The novel was written by Lawrence Sanders, who obviously previously had the Anderson tapes adapted from his novel. And I also, love Larry Sanders. <laughs> no, not, not Larry <laughs> Sanders. Uh, that's Bernie's brother, right? <laughs> um, he does have a brother named Larry Sanders, but it's not the same person that wrote these books, I don't think. Uh, and Fornicon was another book that he had written that was made into a movie, which sounds pornographic now that I'm looking at it, but um, <laughs> I don't remember what the cover box was. Frank Sinatra was Edward Delaney here. He's obviously Danny Ocean in the original Ocean's Eleven. He's Major Bennett Marco in The Manchurian Candidate. He's Angelo Maggio in From Here to Eternity, and we'll see him next as himself in Cannonball Run 2. Faye Dunaway was Barbara Delaney. She's Bonnie Parker and Bonnie and Clyde. Diana Christensen in Network, Evelyn Mulray in Chinatown, and we'll have her again next year in Mommy Dearest as Joan Crawford. David Dukes is Daniel Blank. He did not found the KKK. Yeah. Uh, I <laughs> Unfortunate name for this guy. I, I was looking him up. I was like, no. <laughs> uh, he played David Lewis in Gods and Monsters. That was a longtime companion of director James Wales. He plays Joseph McPhee on Dawson's Creek, the father of Andy and Jack McPhee. I don't know those characters at all because I've never seen a single episode of the show. He'll be back next year as David in Only When I Laugh. George Coe was Dr. Bernardi. He plays General Scott Wilson in Remo Williams. He's the voice of Wheeljack on Transformers Dark of the Moon. 
He's Jim O'Connor in Kramer vs. Kramer. He's Adam Sandler's dad in Funny People. And he's also the voice of Woodhouse on Archer. We just lost him about five years back. Brenda Vaccaro was Monica Gilbert. She plays Bianca in Supergirl. She's Shirley in Midnight Cowboy. She's Kay Brubaker in Capricorn One. And Florinda in Zorro the Gay Blade next year. Martin Gable was Christopher Langley, the museum curator. This was his last film. He was also Sidney Strutt in Marnie. He plays Warden Legoff in There Was a Crooked Man. Anthony Zerby was Captain Broughton, or Broughton. He plays Dog Boy in Cool Hand Luke. He's Matthias in Omega Man. He's Roger Stewart in The Dead Zone. Milton Crest in License to Kill. Doherty in Star Trek Insurrection. Counselor Hammond in Matrix Reloaded. And we just had him as Rice Whedon for our July Patreon review of They Call Me Mr. Tibbs. He was like the landlord of the building. James Whitmore was Dr. Sanford Ferguson. He plays Sergeant Ben Peterson in Them. He plays Brooks Hatlin in The Shawshank Redemption of Brooks Was Here fame. Which uh, I think I heard a story, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not but brooks whelan was an snl cast member for a season or two okay um or maybe he's still on there i have no idea no he wouldn't be according to this legend but apparently he carved brooks was here on a piece of wood somewhere on the stage when he was fired from saturday night live which sounds awesome um so now they just need to hire someone named red uh james whitmore was also harry truman in give him hell harry joe spinell was charles lipsky here that's the doorman the first doorman that he speaks to we've had him so far in little dragons cruising ninth configuration brubaker melvin and howard and forbidden zone all this year but this is his last appearance for 1980 and next year he'll be showing up in maniac and nighthawks jeffrey demun was sergeant fernandez corelli we had him earlier this year in resurrection as the husband who drove off a cliff he's best known probably now as dale horvath from the walking dead or possibly chuck rhodes senior on billions and he was also Harry Terwilliger in The Green Mile, speaking of prison movies uh, directed by, what's his name, Shawshank? What's the guy that Darabont? Frank Darabont, there you go. Up or down, Jess? Oh, it's a down. I think it's probably a down for me, too. There wasn't enough of a twist or uniqueness to the story to I, warrant. I had up. so many problems with the pacing. It was hard to get through it was boring and every every scene went on too long if you if it had been a cut a, a little bit tighter which would have been easy to do uh it might have gone up a little bit but it's it's almost two hours long it's right? two hours yeah, yeah it's crazy it, yeah, it, didn't need it does not hours. deserve that much time no. and most of the scenes lingered much too long I, I was not in the mood to watch this movie when i watched it and so i got very angry <laughs> i get that and and i, and I was just like I'm really mad at this movie for many reasons. And and I, I think what, what played into that too was I was watching it at my standing desk and I was standing. And, <laughs> and, and I'm just like... like I sh- can't stand for this. Yeah, I'm like shifting back and forth because it's like, is anything at all going to happen? All my notes start with Delaney goes here, Delaney goes yeah. there, Delaney goes here, Delaney talks to this person. Yeah. And, and a lot of my notes are like, no new information has been gathered. Yeah. Like even though there's like seven scenes that could have been cut from this. Yeah, even though I love Langley, uh, and I love that he keeps visiting him, when he keeps coming back to him with "This isn't the right tool. This isn't the right tool." But I'm checking other places. I'm checking other places. None of those scenes should have happened. 
It should have just he just came back with the tool. Yeah. Yeah. We we were aware. Maybe they just had the one scene where he's in the hardware store, but not to have him come back with other tools that aren't right, or even the photos of other tools because he does that. He comes back There's with three photos. layers to it. Yeah. yeah. He comes back with photos first, then he comes back with tools that aren't the tool, then he finally comes back with the right tool. But he also he talks to the widow three times mm-hmm. on the way to inviting her to come work for him which didn't need to happen like cut out the middle one where yeah they're just talking at the door sharing no information cut the girl in prison that had nothing yeah. to do and that was a long scene too yeah because it because sorry to keep interrupting yeah yeah because it, it starts with just the prisoners out on the in the record in the rec yard yeah and, yeah. I'm like, and they're like fighting with each other and it takes a while to get to him yeah and i was like what is this all about and then you cut the scene with Ben at the bar because who cares about this guy? He's in just this one scene and then he disappears. Cut the scene where he's arguing with the other captain about exhuming somebody who never gets exhumed. Never gets exhumed. So it's just all these scenes that didn't need to happen. Along with probably two two or three of the hospital scenes. I go to check on my wife. She says something that makes sense. She says something that doesn't make sense. She passes out a yell at a doctor. That happens four times in this movie. <laughs> but yeah. That's a down, I think three downs, right? Yeah. Letterbox, Jess? It's pretty low. Uh, I have it at number 100 right now. Okay. Is, Out of 120. It is uh, below resurrection and above effects. Okay. Richard? Uh, I have it at 89, which puts it just below Willie and Phil and just above Cheech and Chong's next movie. I'd rather watch that any day. No. <laughs> I also was angry watching Cheetah Jog. I was like, this movie is inferior. Stop watching movies on your standing desk. <laughs> that movie you're supposed to watch at your smoking marijuana desk. <laughs> For me, it is going just above Stunt Rock and just below Can't Stop the Music. So that's 105th place pretty low also uh, but i i can't put it above can't stop the music because there's actually music in there that i like but it goes above stunt rock because there's almost nothing in stunt rock for oh, me oh man see that's the problem is i think i put can't stop the music a little too low <laughs> i would rather watch that than this but that's below it right now we're gonna give ourselves some leeway with these lists at the end of the year yay we can kind of make some adjustments because there's stuff on here that's just wrong i just messed up you got to give yourself time to judge well, the film fairly. I think I think it's really important to point out that when you're putting these in this order, at, because we're doing it in chronological order and not looking at the year as a whole when we're making our lists, the problem is that if you screwed up early on by like one movie or two movies and then they start the gaps between them started growing with other movies, now there's this huge gap where you really put something in the wrong spot. Yeah that did happen i think that's everything for this one if you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us we are vintage video pod on twitter facebook instagram and letterboxd or as i've said before you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year we can also be found at vintagevideopodcast.com please consider rating us on itunes to help people find the show and if you take the time to leave us a review we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode if you're feeling especially generous you can also support the show through patreon.com slash vintage video podcast Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing The Man with Bogart's Face, which IMDb describes like so. In contemporary Hollywood, private investigator Sam Marlowe gets plastic surgery to look like Humphrey Bogart 
and solves various cases just like Bogart's silver screen detectives from the 1940s. We leave you now with The Man with Bogart's Face. The time is now. The beat is Hollywood. The heat is a discount 32. The skirts are blonde, brunette, and redhead. I'm mother. But the prize is sapphire blue. In a world of illusion, where the danger is real, it takes a cool-headed private eye to solve a red-hot mystery. It's a case for an expert. Ready when you are. And there's only one man who has what it takes to crack it. The man with Bogart's face. Did I see you sometime on television in old movies? No, that's somebody else. He sure look like you. No, I look like him. A call from a stranger. Shay Marlowe. Oh, Mr. Marlowe, thank heavens you're there. I need your help. I get $200 a day plus expenses. Desperate dames on the doorstep. How much they want and when? $10,000 today. A clunk in the attic. How come you got a twitch? This is a risky business, mother. So long, sweetheart. Robert Saki will astound you in The Man with Bogart's Face.